I like being a church where you can make mistakes with candles and music. That's good. It's healthy. Right. I wonder if any of you have ever toughed it out recently doing an obstacle course. Any takers? No? <laughs> well, I wonder if you've heard about a famous obstacle course stroke slash race called Tough Mudder. Maybe someone in your family has done it, sort of been sponsored to do it. It's one of these crazy giant obstacle courses and it's made even worse by the hazardous mess and slippy mud and pools of muck on the way around. Some people totally love it and they've toughed it out to the finishing line through the mud and the physical challenge. Would you like to see a photograph of one of our congregation members having a shot? It isn't me, by the way. Okay, here we go. Raymond. <laughs> well done, Raymond. <laughs> I don't know if he's in here this morning. No, he's doing the crash. All right then. Well, he's not going to be embarrassed by this, but he's listening. Okay, Raymond, can you hear us? Hello. We're looking at you. Okay, so this is a picture of Raymond having a shot. I'd like you to imagine yourself maybe having a show of this, or maybe keep that image of Raymond in your mind as I speak to you this morning about John the Baptist. Traditionally, we spend the second Sunday of Advent thinking about this unusual, kind of weird man who was a forerunner for the ministry of Jesus himself. And when I say weird, I mean weird. What strange details the gospel writers go into to tell us what he was like. They've journaled about him, that he had clothing that was made of camel's hair. He wore a leather belt around his waist. And he actually lived on a diet of locusts and honey. Sounds to me like something from I'm a Celebrity. Get me out of here. Don't know if any of you watched that program. My dad would like John the Baptist because he loves that program. One Christmas, I even bought him some dried locusts to eat. Now, if he was a member of your family, you might think and describe him to other members of society as somebody that lived an alternative kind of lifestyle. But when the gospel writers were including these details about him in their journal, they were expecting you and me as the readers to realise something. And they weren't expecting us just to think that he was a total weirdo. It goes a wee bit deeper than that. Do you remember that before John was even conceived, his dad, who was a Jewish temple priest called Zachariah, was in the temple and he had a visitation from an angel and told him that his child was going to be great in the eyes of the Lord. The whole experience was so shocking to him that he was actually blinded by the event because he was told that his child was going to fulfill the very ministry of Elijah himself. And that's why we get told about this dude's clothing, okay? Because this is what Elijah wore. The writer of the gospel is wanting you to know that at the point where we enter the story, John is doing what he was born to do. He was doing what was foretold about him. He was going to fulfill the ministry of Elijah himself. It would have also shocked you if you were reading about it at the time, the clothes that he was wearing. He was the son of a priest he was meant to have, by his 30th birthday, been wearing these kind of priestly robes. But instead, oh, he just looks like some homeless dude, doesn't he? And I wonder, why did he leave the temple? Did he choose it? Or maybe he was rejected by the people 
in the temple and he had to go somewhere else with his message from God. Do you ever like to wonder about Bible stories and the things that they don't tell you? I certainly do. I'm quite nosy. I keep wondering, why did John decide to give up this position of being one of the religious elite in favour of becoming homeless, effectively a scavenger for food, and rejecting the life mapped out before him as part of the priestly tribe? Why? Why did he? They don't tell us. <laughs> I wonder if the vision from, that his dad got and maybe his dad shared with him, had really shaped what he decided he was going to do with his life. I also wonder if he'd had a significant encounter with God himself that maybe had made him decide to choose a different path in favour of being the announcer of Jesus coming. This is a bit weird. But he spent a lot of time in the temple as a child. And I kind of wonder, you know, did he see people come into the temple and kill animal after animal after animal to make peace with God? Did it traumatize him? Did it make him think, I don't want to be a part of that? I wonder if he saw rich people come into the temple and kill animal for the sin they'd committed, leave the temple, do the same thing again, come back to the temple with the knowledge that they had the money to buy an animal to just kill again. I wonder if he thought the whole temple system was meaningless and pointless. I also wonder if he thought, look at all the poor people that can't even come to the temple and make a sacrifice because they didn't have the money to even afford, what was it, a dove or something, the cheapest thing, um, to make the sacrifice. And I think all of this added up to make John the Baptist the man that we get to read about. So did God come to him sort of heavenly dream, or did he just know somewhere deep down inside him that God's forgiveness was not about an exchange between an action, a sinful action, and blood, but it was a demand to change dramatically the way that we're living our lives. So that's why I think he geographically, physically, verbally abandons temple way of life and moves out into the wilderness. He leaves the ugly, bloodthirsty, elitist obstacle course because he wanted people to actually change the way they were living. Something inside of him was crying out, we've got to do this God stuff so much differently than we're doing it at the minute. He seems to then have adapted or taken with him some sort of ritual with water. We're going to call it baptism as we know it now. Um, and he's now using it for something different. So it's no longer about a physical cleansing from impurity, but it seems to be some sort of symbolic act of an inner desire to live a different life. The water seems to be some sort of catalyst, some sort of kickstarter, kick up the bum, um, to live that different life. He washed people in a river far away from the temple. And when they got out the river, what did he say? He said, share your food, share your clothes, and stop participating in systems that rob poor people. His message was completely counter-religious temple culture, where the gap between rich and poor was heightened and heightened by the systems that were going on in there. Doesn't sound too different to what's going on in our nation at the minute. Now, I'm going to get Chris to put up a wee slide. Okay. 
This shows like, one of the top ten, I don't know if it is exactly a top ten, but it's countries from the West, ten countries from the West are actually quite financially wealthy. And it's the gap between the richest and the poorest regions. And you'll see that the UK in 2015, this was, has got one of the worst gaps between rich and poor. Now think how well off we are as a nation compared to the global picture. The gap is getting bigger and bigger. So just take that away with you today as a sort of aside to what I'm really trying to say. But the, this, we all know this is wrong, don't we? But it suits us. It suits us because maybe we're not poor. Or maybe to fight the system and make a different way of life seems like it's going to take an awful lot of effort. And maybe it seems to us kind of impossible at the moment. Right, let's flick back to this weird guy, John the Baptist. Okay. He was in favour of economic reform, but he was also a religious obstacle course remover. And that's why I just love this guy. Okay. If he didn't have any money, it didn't matter to John. No money, no issue. No status, no issue. You're not ritually clean, no issue. You're not Jewish, no issue. You're hated by society, no issue. You're unable to enter the temple and do what's needed, no issue. Just come out to the wilderness, step into the river, come out of the river, and just live the life that you know you want to. He waited in the wilderness for people to come, and they came in their hordes from all different sections of society. You could read a wee bit more about that in Luke 3, all the different people that came to him. He seemed to have tapped on some sort of desperation that was in people at that time who were crying out to do life socially differently. He seemed to be making a straight path to God, and he did that by rejecting the religious establishment and who endorsed, question mark, who endorsed his intention? God himself. Jesus himself. At the beginning of Jesus' ministry, he didn't go up to the high priest. He's like, hey, Mr. High Priest, can I have your robes? I'm here now. I'm here to do what I've been born to do. Why not? Because the high priest would have never let him. He went out into the wilderness and he found a homeless man called John. And John baptised him. And then John said to his followers, Stop listening to me, guys. Jesus is here. My job is done. You see, Jesus came to tear down every religious obstacle that was between people and God. He was never meant to be an obstacle. We were never meant to make obstacles between man and God. And I think we as a church, I'm going to move this down a wee bit because I can't see folk over there. There we go. We as a church need to try and get rid of all the religious obstacles that we've put in the way and just make it a bit easier for people to encounter God. I'm sure we all want that. I just want it to be just easier for people to meet God. So what kind of religious obstacles are we putting in the way today? Well, firstly, I'd like to suggest... Um, we've got these religious buildings, right? Now, no matter how much we love them and are used to them, they're intimidating, they're old-fashioned, they're a huge financial commitment, and frequently we have to give them priority or maybe a special, we, we choose to give them a reverence more than they deserve, more than the message of Jesus himself. 
We've got an obstacle of Sunday worship, where we think this is how people are going to learn about God. But people that don't know God enter a church building, and because of the ceremony and the traditions and the old songs, they actually miss the essence of Jesus. And it's not their fault, and they're probably not going to start coming because it doesn't mean anything to them. We've got religious language. And I've said before, religious jargon, and I've used probably quite a lot of it as I've been speaking to you, puts people off. It makes them, gets up like, I don't know, it shuts them down. They unengage. We need to be able to engage with people's questions and real needs. Another obstacle we've got is a theology of sexuality. People in People see the church globally as homophobic and unwelcoming to everybody. And I agree. I don't think churches are perceived as safe spaces by the people that might need it the most. We've got an obstacle where we expect people to believe with certainty. Or maybe we don't expect it, but, you know, it's kind of out there. On the edges, it's a sort of expectation that's there. And churches seem unwilling to engage Sunday by Sunday with science and questions. And I think it leaves not just young people, but all of us forced into a place where we perceive that Christians are kind of deluded by a wee bit of untruth, if we're really honest with ourselves. There's a notion that Christianity is the best. If everybody was a Christian, it would be great. And this kind of breeds a sort of, um, what am I going to say? What's the word? A sort of spiritual arrogance when we meet people of other faiths or no faith. And I think it makes our message quite exclusive. And lastly, although probably not lastly, we've got an idea that a proper Christian is someone that's realized they're a nasty sinner, they pray a magic prayer to Jesus, and they get a pass to heaven. But actually, a true friend of Jesus would live like Jesus. And I'm sure we all feel, what's the word? I don't have the word for it. Do you know what I mean? (laughs) Thank you. (laughs) Thank you, God. Just intercede there. Okay, so all these things can add up to make church to an outsider. Can it look like tough mother? All these obstacles I've got to manage before I get to meet God. And at the finish line, or maybe when we leave the church door, maybe they don't see people living dramatically different lives to the life that they're living. And therefore they think, well, that's kind of pointless. Do you get where I'm coming from? I think the way to God should be easier and lighter. And that's Jesus' words himself. And I'm going to add one more. I think it should be natural. It's in our very nature to connect with the person that made us, made you, made everything around us. I also happen to believe that people do want to live dramatically different lives to what society expects of them at the minute. It seems to me that they're just caught up in a system which kind of traps them and confines them into a way of living which doesn't bring peace. For example, we all know, you've been to the shops, you've heard people whine about Christmas. People don't really enjoy the rat race of materialism and perfectionism. 
but they're kind of caught up in it, and it's quite exhausting. It's an exhausting treadmill, and it never stops. People don't really like the daily grind to make enough money to buy the things that they want to buy, that society tells them that they need. People know it doesn't make them happy. People aren't stupid. I think people would love to give away their money to the poor because it makes them incredibly uncomfortable to see this gap continually growing between rich and poor. But how do they know that if they gave everything that they had to the other that was most in need, would there be someone behind them given to them? There doesn't seem to be a trust in a shared economy as much as there should be, as much that Jesus would demand of us. It seems to be every family or every man for themselves. People want to be less isolated. But after they've put in a day's work to make sure that their children are the next child prodigy and they've completed every task, after they've earned enough money to buy the things that they want to buy, they hardly have enough energy to put into friendships, helping in the community, and even imagining a different way of living. So we might flop down in front of the telly, binge watch Netflix, eat junk food, do the socially programmed social media thing, and fall asleep. Then we wake up, and the next day, it's just the same. And most of the time it's fun. Some of these things are fun, and most of the time it's fine. We're so busy, we don't even notice that we're doing it. But then sometimes we get these moments of quiet, and we're like, why do I do all this stuff? Why do I want the things I want? Why is every day the same? And why is the world still so messed up? So what would break that groundhog, repetitive kind of day? And I'd like to suggest a new story being told, a new story being lived out that's attractive, inspiring, and demonstrated. So what makes me an expert on people? Well, I'm a person, and I'm one of them. <laughs> the very small difference being that I've had a chance to look at the life of Jesus. I've imperfectly tried to live it out, but when I've tried to do what he says, I've realized that it's worked. And when I've immersed myself in the stories of Jesus, I think to myself, and I can imagine, and I can dream of communities living in very different ways. If I was to live the Jesus story out all on my own, I'd be hungry, hated, homeless, probably like John the Baptist. But if I was to live it out in community, I think it would be something. It would be something. And I think it would be good. And rewriting how we do economics would just be the start of it. Some might say from cynicism or real life experience, oh Sarah, this is impossible. But for me, this is where things get real. If you believe in Jesus, it means that you want and you need to fit your life story into the story of Jesus and make it fit. You're willing to do it because you don't want when you wake up tomorrow for the world to just be the same or even worse. And even if the task seems impossible, you're willing to enter into the ways of Jesus, into this self-emptying lifestyle. Even if we fail, we're still willing to enter it because no action of love is ever wasted. Look at the cross. What looks like failure is actually victory. Anything other 
than embodying Jesus in community is only liking Jesus. We might sing songs about him. We might hear stories about him. We might maintain a building in his name. But the fruit of it is just liking Jesus. One day, all the traditions, no matter how modern we are, will be obstacles for people. And I think we've got a free choice of which direction we're going to travel in and work towards. Do we travel towards a body of Christ being visible in our community? Or do we make choices and travel towards creating a museum to the life and work of Jesus Christ? Which one would you like to be a part of? John the Baptist presents to us a vision of what we should be doing as the body of Christ. Our faith community must prepare a way for people to meet God and we just must make it easier. We must go into wild spaces. We must make a straight path to God. We must bring down every mountain and hill. We must fill up every valley. We must straighten out every winding road. We must cover over all the rough places. This is our task. No more religious tough mudder. No more religious obstacle course. We must embody Jesus. Amen.